Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Many of you would know that I enjoy or I love having conversations with therapists, psychiatrists and people that deal with the human condition, really how we can help those that are struggling with mental health issues, especially uh, the area of trauma. My next guest is an incredible human being and I have Long waited to actually release this conversation with you all, but she she's a fascinating human. Uh, let's just say that she's got a very diverse background, but her name is Linda Thai. And for those of you that need to know more about who she is and what she does, she's a somatic therapist and trauma therapist, uh, freelance educator, public speaker, and storyteller. She's great at it as well. She's got this kind voice that really keeps you engaged, I would say. She's also a group facilitator, collaborator, infiltrator, cross-pollinator, community builder, agent of change, former child refugee, and just an overall happy human being. Linda is a trauma therapist and educator who specializes in brain and body-based modalities for addressing complex development and developmental trauma. She is highly sought after for her trainings in trauma-informed care, compassion fatigue, resilience, and vicarious trauma recovery skills for human service professionals. As an adjudicant faculty member in the social work department at the University of Alcastus Fairbank, Linda's uh, decolonized approach to education and engaging teaching style makes her well-loved with students. She also assists internationally renowned psychiatrist and trauma expert, the man that wrote The Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and, and many of you uh, have loved my conversation with Dr. Bessel. You can go and check it out now. Link is in the show notes below to make it easy for you. But this is another conversation surrounding 
the the area of trauma. And I know that these days it seems like a lot of people are using that word uh, for whatever excuse they they can pretty much use. Um, if they go through a small thing, they say, oh, I was traumatized by that. And it's almost become like this buzzword, I feel like, in, in today's day and age. But I think my conversation with Linda is going to help bridge uh, a great deal of that and, and help you recover from real trauma and not just something that uh, may seem or feel like a trauma uh, in your life. So I hope that you guys get a lot from this one as much as I did. Uh, this conversation, once again, did take place a little while ago, but still has a lot of re- relevance, if not more, uh, in today's day and age. So once again, my friends, Merry Christmas. I hope that you have a great time with friends and family and it's a joyful time of year. So I hope that uh, those that are struggling get helped in some way, shape or form by this conversation. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Linda Thai. Thank you so much, Jay. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine. I mean that uh, wholeheartedly. I mean, I I love hearing your your amazing stories. It's like the, the snapshot of it. And I think this is a safe place for you, by the way. I just thought I'd say that because whenever we talk about trauma, bringing up old wounds, it kind of there's trigger warnings and everything like that. So I want to make sure that you feel like you're safe here today in whatever you want to share. There is no pressure at all, but I I just want to say that I respect you. I respect your story and I'm excited to get to unbox it today. So thank you for being here. I normally ask all my guests at the very start is, um, this is my one of my favorite questions, but I thought I'd start it with you as well. And that is, what does success look like for you? Oh, you know, it's funny because I actually think that success is a byproduct. Mm. You know, just like happiness is a byproduct, inner peace is a byproduct. And I think we all get, we all go awry when we chase success or chase happiness or chase inner peace. Mm. Yeah, they're byproducts of having moved through the things that are obstacles or stand in the way of our remembering of who we actually truly are at our core. Mm. Yeah. When was the moment for you that you realised that that was success? Was it this catalyst moment for you or was it sort of a gradual thing over time? Both and, both and. I mean, there are a couple of, actually there's some highlights of the last, I don't know, a couple of decades of my life, but there was this one moment where I was with my beloved we bought five acres of land in Alaska, Fairbanks, outside of city limits where there's no building codes. Mm. So there's no council approvals. There's no building codes, there's no submissions. There's no architectural blah, blah, blah. If you want to build it, you go ahead and do it. Wow. And together he and I had built a log cabin. Mm. Right, so we bought five acres of land, built a log cabin, no running water, and we're both 29 and so we're essentially we're retired because we own where we live. And so all the pressures of toxic capitalism and, and consumerism was just like gone. 
and we could actually rest, we could heal, we could create, we could live, we could be empowered in making our own choices. And so for me, that was, you know, that was a moment of success for me. Mm. And I wouldn't have got there if I chased it intentionally. It was like a total byproduct. Mm. And another key moment of success for me was a couple of years ago when um, I assisted Dr. Bessel van der Kolk uh, with his private small group psychotherapy workshops and just thinking to myself the amount of work that I have put myself through in order to be able to be here, in order to be able to do this work and the amount of pain that I've moved, of my own pain, right, that I've moved through my body so that I could be so blessed to be in this position mm-hmm. and to hold this space for other people. I want to get into all the pain, or not all of it, because I don't think we can share all of it, <laughs> like this lifetime's worth. But, you know, you've assisted Dr. Bessel. Now, for those people that don't know who he is, he wrote the, the best-selling book, The Body Keeps a Score. I highly encourage you to go and get a copy of it. Everyone has trauma in their life. Just want to say that whether or not you've realized it, it's there. Um, I'm curious, like you mentioned, you live in Alaska now. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to move from, I guess you could say Western society to Alaska of all places and buy your own land and build a, a log cabin and live without the pressures of capitalism and society and social media as well, all that stuff. Yes. Well, they didn't have social media back when I moved to Alaska. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Yes, Yes, but they did have television. And so I I got to get away from television. Um, Let's see here. So I was born in Vietnam and I was born in post-war Vietnam. And so my family, uh, in order to leave the, the, the communist takeover of Vietnam, because my dad was wanted by the communists, we fled by boat. So we were Vietnamese boat people. We were raided by pirates. We made it to a refugee camp uh, off the coast of Malaysia. And then my little sister was born in the refugee camp. I'm two and a half. We lived there for about six months. My family gets sponsored out to Australia under a pilot rural resettlement scheme. So we land in Tumut in the middle of New South Wales in 1979. And after a couple of years there, we moved to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. to be with more Vietnamese people, people who knew what we had been through and what he, we had survived and, and you know, forged what we could of a life for ourselves there. And yet for me growing up in the suburbs of Melbourne, you know, Noble Park, you know, four-bedroom brick house, <laughs> quarter-acre block, for my parents working in factories was, and that routine of the same every day, like healed something in them. But for me growing up within that, I wanted more out of life and I couldn't figure out that, what that was. Mm-hmm. And with what I know now, I look back and it's like my parents were just so traumatised. They were depressed and dissociated and they weren't able to be there for us in the ways in which we needed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was that feeling of not feeling quite right in my own body, not feeling like I quite belonged. I didn't feel totally Vietnamese and I didn't feel totally Australian. And so I just, I kept trying, like I kept trying to figure it out. And I thought I just needed to find the right balance of the right boyfriend, the right job, the right leisure activities, the right amount of money, and then I would be happy. And I did the corporate thing. I realized it wasn't for me. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, but I'd made one mortgage repayment on the townhouse that I'd bought at the time with my boyfriend. And I went, this isn't for me. The ladder's up against the wrong wall. So I I quit that. I'd been waitressing for seven years before that. So I kept waitressing. I realized I wasn't going to make enough money from that, right, to, to keep paying this mortgage. Um, so I started working as a stripper. And then while I'm working as a stripper, I realized that I just need to apply all the things I learned in business school. Right, what's my unique sales proposition? What's, you know, my cash, get my cash flow in order. And then I realized that I could actually set myself up for the rest of my life with the money that I'm making with this. Mm. But then I realized the question isn't how do I be happy or what makes me happy? The question actually is who am I? And so I then start traveling. Um, and that's a whole nother story about how I landed in Alaska. But I, I landed in Alaska, I discovered it after a series of events and I just fell in love with the place Mm. because at the time I was working as a stripper and I was also working as a stage manager so you know I'm I'm and I'm loving the stage management work because I get to go to work I get to do my gig I get to write the invoice and I get to go home whereas corporate life was just the churn Mm. right it was just the grind and I just couldn't do that And so for me, discovering Alaska was like this third place where it was a totally different world. You're hunting, fishing, growing your own vegetables, picking berries, making jam, um, going canoeing, going hiking, and like the bigness of nature and all these fabulous people. Yeah. And then I fell in love with a man and then I'm like trying to juggle the stripping and the stage managing with Alaska. And so we do that for about four years. Um, during which time we buy some land, build a log cabin, and I realise that this is this is where I want to be. Mm. Yeah, so I got married, and then got really depressed after getting married, um, because I was one of those people that I'd, I said I'll, I'll never ever get married. <laughs> and the thing is, when you come when you've got two separate citizenships going on, you know you, you kind of got to get married to have the relationship continue for longer than a three month tourist visa. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got married in the midst of my, I'm depressed because I'm married and I'm waiting for my green card to come through. I have a friend who says, I've got a companion fair. Um, do you want to do this for pastor meditation thing with me? And I'm like, hey, I'll go anywhere right now because I'm not allowed to leave the country. And so I do my first 10-day silent meditation retreat and it changes my world. And then shortly after that, I discovered yoga and then it just became the, the 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 it became the platform for this growing self awareness, and that was when I realised that I was a total addict. Yeah, I was addicted to using anything and everything that I could get my hands on outside of me, chemical and non chemical. Yeah, to try and alter how I was feeling and the feelings that I was doing anything to avoid was um, shame, rejection, criticism, abandonment. And here I was, this, this, I was just exerting more and more control over a smaller and smaller world. And I had to stop. And I wasn't realising how miserable I was until the tools of meditation and yoga caused me to develop this self-awareness that made me realise all of this. Mm. Yeah. And then from there, I started teaching yoga and meditation in addiction recovery and trauma recovery, realised it was only a twist or two of fate 
there I could have gone, yeah, in terms of some pretty serious addictions and read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk and that changed my perspective on the world and on myself because all of a sudden I made sense. Mm -hmm. My family made sense. Uh, All the people I was raised around as a child made sense because I married a white man. Right. I only ever dated non-Asian men because I figured that there was something wrong with my people because I never saw anyone happy. But now I know it's because they were, they were all traumatised. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a, it's, it was a lot to, to begin to unpack and that book was the beginning of it for me. And then after that I... Uh, I became a mental health professional specialising in trauma uh, recovery and healing from childhood trauma. And it's not just the things that happened that shouldn't have happened, it's also the things that didn't happen that should have happened, that changes how we move through the world. And so I'm doing my own growth and my own healing as I'm going through graduate school. And then along the way, I'm studying with Bessel one week every year in his experiential psychodrama workshops with Leisha Skye. And then at some point, I felt ready to approach him and ask, can I please assist at your um, private small group workshops? And so that's been a highlight for me. And then just the ongoing um, the ongoing work in this field has, yeah, has been so so profoundly moving for me and yet it's that Alaska piece yeah because how you live is so much more important than what you do (laughs) and I still live without running water I still live without a television (laughs) yeah I only got a cell phone like five years ago (laughs) so this is there's a lot for me to sort of unbox there and I sort of want to go back to the very beginning, if we can, yeah. and sort of work yeah. our way through each of the stories. Is there's like so many questions I want to ask you, so I'm going to try and pace myself. <laughs> do you remember fleeing from Vietnam, and do you remember all the craziness that unfolded with that? No, I don't remember any of that, and I actually have really few childhood memories. Yeah, like for me, my first memories started when I was like five, four or five years old, which I learned is kind of old. Mm. And then I remember being in primary school and having like memories vague in and vague out. Yeah. Yeah, you know, of, of running across the the um, the cricket pitch <laughs> and, and kicking the footy around and playing dodgeball and, mm. and British Bulldogs. Did you have any sort of... Painful memories to the game. Nothing. Or blank. Nothing. That's why the body keeps the score changed everything for me because trauma survivors don't have memories. They have symptoms. And I had all the symptoms. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. And that explained it to me. Like that was why my nervous system was all over the place. Yeah. That was why I struggled with human relationships. Yeah. That's why I struggle with memory and the past and the future and having a coherent sense of time and place. Yeah. And struggle to be trauma. Yeah. Childhood trauma. Yeah. Struggle to be in my body. I know. I know all that because I've experienced 
trauma for myself from a very young age. And I call it like a traumatic daze, kind of like what you were talking about, how you don't really know that it is there until kind of like the veil is lifted a little bit and then it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then that's what happened with me. So I'll be real. So sexual abuse when I was six, Mm -hmm. not knowing who I was, lack of identity. I was Mm -hmm. different, bullied Mm by in primary school, high school, uh, struggled a lot mentally, um, Mm -hmm. education. I had to work hard, had a lot of death uh, from people close to me. So I had all this crazy and, you know, grew up in a lower middle class, I guess you could say I was middle class, um, family and then just sort of had to in my later years uh you know 14 depression but I had a lot of health issues so I was born with I could go through a whole list Linda absolutely crazy but this is not about me but what I want to allude to is that when the veil was lifted from my eyes and I finally read this book but also this book it made a ton of sense. Like I didn't expect it to make sense either. I was just going through the motions thinking that I could do my own healing for a, for a long period of time. But then I realized, hang on a minute, I, I need to go and get help from someone. I need to go and speak to someone about this and get all the hurt out and start talking it through, <laughs> which is one of the strategies about healing with trauma, I believe. So for you, Linda, growing up in like this cultural differences and not knowing your place or where you are, how did you finally discover who you were as a person and be comfortable with that, have the peace and understanding that this is who Linda High is? Yes. I think it's a process that happens over time. Yeah, because if it happened all at once, it would just would have been overwhelming. And my sense of me and my own body is like I'm like I've got a six foot wall of cotton wool strapped around me, like the marshmallow man moving through the world. And I don't like feel myself. And um, and it's like every time a piece of cotton wool gets taken away, I feel a bit more defenseless. Yeah. And for me, it was the yoga meditation, like a solid 10 years of that that allowed me to tolerate the present moment and allowed me to tolerate sensations. And, you know, I remember going to yoga class and the style of yoga I fell in love with was power yoga. So it was hard. It was fast. It was like, you know, like really intense. And part of what trauma does to the brain and the body is that I mistake intensity for intimacy. So I chase sensations and yet at the same time, I'm hypersensitive to other things. And so I'm noticing myself on the yoga mat, competing, comparing, bitching and moaning, uh, ragging out on the yoga teacher, ragging out on the folks around me. And the thing is how you do one thing is how you do everything. So on my yoga mat is my life, right? It's the harsh inner critic over and over and over again. And so through being able to just focus on the breath, right, and to breathe, I was able to create more and more space between myself and my thoughts. Mm. And 
Then through 12-step groups, which is a sharing circle, I was able to tolerate talking about my feelings first by hearing other people talk about their feelings and their lives Mm. and to be inspired and in awe of that until eventually I started to talk about my life. And so that was another layer, but that took another, you know, I know I've, I've been in groups now for close to 10 years, but it took like a solid four years for that to gain traction. And then reading The Body Keeps the Score, all those um, therapy models that Bessel talks about, I went and got trained in them. And the reason I got trained in them is because I live in a rural area and getting access to providers who are trained in those modalities was like a not proposition that was going to happen. And so my way of accessing my healing was going and getting trained in those modalities. And so I used the trainings as ways in which to integrate those therapy modalities by learning it from the inside out. And so I got trained in IFS and internal family systems and um, sensory motor psychotherapy, um, studied with Bessel in his version of psychodrama, um, and then also got trained in neurofeedback as well as the Safe and Sound Protocol, Havening Touch, Flash Technique, like other brain and body-based techniques because I know from my own lived experiences that being in a room with a therapist and doing talk therapy wasn't going to be enough. Like it wasn't going to work. It was just going to re-traumatise me and I could just keep talking in circles and circles and circles. Yeah. Yeah. I think the breath is so important and we often take it for granted and so many people, they don't know the sheer power of it. And I say to people like one of the pieces of advice that I give to people if they do feel like they are being triggered or if they have like a thought come into their brain, I say blink twice and then breathe in and out. So the blink twice gets you to think that it's you're triggered. So now I'm going to put in the other practice of breathing in and out to sort of heal and remove that thought and replace it with something else. The blinking was just like the realization and then in and out, in and out, breathe through the nose. I spoke with, um, I don't know if you know, James Nestor. Yes, yes, yes. I spoke. I, I spoke love his book. I've, I've got it there somewhere too. But he was talking about how we've kind of lost the art of breathing and how we need to bring it all back and yes. how breathing through the mouth changes our jawline. But breathing through the nose is it's a calming mechanism. Mm-hmm. It calms your entire body. So if you're feeling like you are triggered, or if you're feeling like you do have a lot of tension and pain, that Mm -hmm. breathing through your nose in and out, in and out, just being slow, being present with, and being grounded in nature, Mm -hmm. that helps to relieve the tension and take you on this healing journey, I guess you could call it, of, yeah, healing your own sense of trauma. So... One of the things that I wanted to ask you about for those people that don't actually know some of the some of Bessel's um, healing uh, trauma therapies, are you able to share which one has helped you the most, or is it a combination of all of them? It was a combination of all of them. It's like there's a scaffolding that happens with each modality that I learned and integrated, and with each one I learned to 
be able to attune towards myself and the wounds of my inner child, as well as the the searing pain that I was doing anything to not ever feel. And yet, you know, that which you use to avoid your pain ends up becoming the source of your pain. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Can we, can we dive into, you mentioned that you lived, you worked more or less as a stripper. Mm -hmm. Was that traumatic for you at all? No, it wasn't. It was incredibly empowering. Mm. Yeah. Why, why was it empowering? Because I was in charge. I got to call the shots. It was like, Hey, you come over here, sit down, give me your money. Mm. Yeah. I got to actually use my hypervigilant trauma sixth sense to, to actually good use because I could walk through, through the club and go, oh, you've just got here and you're on your first drink, you're on your third drink, but I'm not on your radar and I can tell that and you're already mine so I don't have to worry about you and you're tossing up between three, three women, yeah, so I'm going to go for you first. Yeah. And then the, the the one who's already waiting for me and he's mine, I'm cool. I can just slot him in whenever. And this guy at the bar who's just got here, I'll just, you know, swing past and say hi. Mm. But times like 10 people, 20 people, 30 people in a space. And I'm able to walk through the space and know exactly where everyone is at at all times and to make it feel really seamless. Mm. Yeah. Did you yeah. feel like you didn't have control? Was there any of those moments? No. No. You know, it's it's funny because people have a perception of strip clubs and of strippers. Mm. And this period of my life was from 2001 until about 2012. So this is before the internet porn explosion. Yeah. This is before uh, the ready accessibility of, um, yeah, basically of internet pornography. And we also have in Australia decriminalised uh, sex work. Mm. Yeah. And so the people who go to strip clubs go there for different reasons than going to a, to a brothel. And you can go to a brothel if you want. Yeah, there was like... Th- three in the immediate area of the club that I worked at. And so it was very, it was a very different clientele. Mm. And I actually found a sense of humanity in there that I got to experience that I wouldn't have experienced anywhere else. Mm. You know, one of my regulars was a a blind man. Yeah. And he would love to um, run his fingers through my hair and feel my hair like against his face and just, you know, the smells. Yeah. And one of the men I dance for regularly, his wife had died of cancer. He was older, he was in his 60s. His wife had died of cancer well over 10 years ago. And I was the first woman that he'd interacted with, you know, in in such a way. Yeah. And I would see a lot of men who um, were divorced but weren't ready to start dating. And so they wanted a safe place where they could just begin to enjoy female company. Uh, men who had some social anxieties um, and so just the opportunity to talk, yeah, to be with people and just talk. Um, And I don't know, I just have a lot of, I have a bigger space in my heart now 
for for men. I mean, I used to carry a comb in my um, purse and, you know, I'd hand my comb to people and to just sit there while someone combs my hair and that moment of sweetness and tenderness that is missing from someone's life can be so restorative to a sense of humanity and there's a strange juxtaposition that you find that in a strip club. And there were so many amazing, amazing women that I worked with. I worked with a deaf stripper. Oh, wow. Like a deaf stripper, yeah. And like this is, you know, there's showgirls and then there's hustlers and this club wasn't set up for showgirls. I mean, you had your time up on the podiums, but it wasn't like a big podium stage. And so, you know, so you actually made most of your money through hustling. And one of the girls I worked with was a, was deaf or is deaf. She's still deaf, right? And how inspiring, like how inspiring. And I saw women of all shapes and sizes. And what I saw through that and through my own changes in shapes and sizes over the years is that men love women and we're so much harder on ourselves than what men are. And it's all about how you carry yourself and to have that 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 exuberance for life shine through. Mm. Yeah. I also got to experience all the various female archetypes. I got to be the vixen. I got to be the, the bitch. I got to be uh, innocent. You know, I got to be uh, tender and vulnerable. I got to be somewhere in between. Mm. And that traumatised part of me really enjoyed being able to figure out what it was that, that was needed in that moment because the money in your pocket was mine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the women. The women. I worked with performing artists. I worked with women doing their PhDs. I worked with, yeah, it wasn't the stereotype of addicted single mothers. Mm. Yeah. Like it wasn't that at all. It was actually incredibly, um, it it was remarkable, that Mm. period of my life. I think. It was attachment theory in action. Yes. (laughs) you said it i mean there's so much there's so much to that i mean i think there's there's definitely this stigma i mean i grew up in a very conservative christian household so that those places internet pornography all of that anything sexual was demonized and saying said you can't go anywhere near it God doesn't like that or love it and you be you be you disobeying God and no one wants to do that if you're a Christian. So I didn't really question but then I found myself getting addicted to porn anyway. Mm-hmm. Curiosity was so much more. Mm-hmm. And then that only sparked the trauma that was already within me 10 times more. Mm-hmm. So by me not having access or having this uh, teaching early on, mm-hmm. uh, the right kind of teaching, like making it sort of the norm, so so to speak, not not to say that it's right or wrong, but it's just that I was not used to it, if that makes sense. And then when it's sort of like, once again, the veil was lifted, I opened up myself to this whole new world. And I didn't really know how to handle it. <laughs> so a lot of people I find they don't know how to handle it either. 
And then, but I think what you've realized with doing that job Mm -hmm. is that men, men do love women. They also carry a ton of pain Mm -hmm. that they might not feel comfortable with sharing with someone else. So they go to those places as a way to, I guess, unwind and try and find some sense of healing, if I can say that. Did you did you find that too? They're trying to find some sense of connection. Yeah. And the anonymity allows for a more authentic connection. I actually found that the strip club was where I've experienced some of the most authentic relationships mm. that I've ever had because there's an anonymity there and the money you know, you're not going to get my phone number. We're not going to date. And no, we're not going to have sex. You're going to give me $50 and then you're going to give me another $50. And then you're going to come again next week. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like harsh and business-like and yet it's not because that creates a boundary. Yeah. Yeah. It creates a boundary. So do you need to create boundaries in your life as a way to heal trauma? Yes. Yes. That's a really good question, actually. Yeah, I think you do. Because for those of us who've experienced the traumatization of boundary violations, we don't know what boundaries are. Mm. Yeah. And so when someone tries to enact a boundary with us, we experience it as you pushing me away. We don't experience it as creating a, a space for safety. Yeah. Yes. And then you yourself, if you don't understand the boundaries there for that person in that relationship that you're in and mm-hmm. that boundary contributes to your trigger, but you don't know it's a trigger in the first place, mm-hmm. it can only spark a world of hurt. And then that yeah. person doesn't understand she's, or they're just looking at, Hey, you've broken my boundary. That's mm-hmm. not right. And, mm-hmm. but you don't understand that you've broken the boundary in the first place. So mm-hmm. now it's sort of like, and how do we yeah. how, do, how do we come together and actually mend that? <laughs> like how do we, if we don't know that it's there, how do we know that it's there in the first place? How do we see the trauma? How do we recognize it? Mm-hmm. And then how do we also recognize that this person has created a boundary for me, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like that's what I'm that's what I've I've been looking at more recently is how can I set up boundaries in my life so then I don't get triggered, but then not that also helps my relationships with people. So then, and I'm honest and open with them. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, I have these triggers. I've created boundaries around them. Can you respect those please? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I, that's, that's where I've been sort of researching more on and trying to do. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> my my best. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if you've sort of looked at something similar in your life. Yes. Yes. You know, there there are so many avenues to to answering that question, right? And each one is a scaffold. Yeah. So the patterns and characteristics of codependency, you know, from codependence anonymous. Um, because that also gives recovery patterns, being able to learn about attachment theory, right? The fear of engulfment or the fear of enmeshment and then the fear of 
uh, abandonment yeah. and this seesawing back and forth between abandonophobism and abandonaholism, yeah, that we're always living on the precipice of, mm. yeah, recognising that brick walls aren't boundaries, yeah, recognising the ways in which we've misused boundaries in the past because boundaries aren't a way to wake someone up, teach someone a lesson, make someone feel jealous, make someone regret their behaviour. <laughs> And I've found that nonviolent communication skills have been wonderful and also recognising that I become like the five people I hang out with the most. Yeah. And so recognising the people who do listen or are able to listen or willing to listen and respect my boundaries. Why don't I have more of them in my life and less of these other people? <laughs> and that's why I love the the sense of community as well. Like when you do go to like those uh, 12-step programs and there's a group of people there, they're kind of, we're all going through similar things. So you all mm-hmm. kind of know, like when you do share and you do feel comfortable to open up to share, it's kind of like you are respecting their boundary as well because it's like, we're in this together. We're all here to try and find healing together. So Mm -hmm. let's share our own story. And that's what I've realized with this, Linda, is stories matter. They're the most important thing on the face of the earth. They are innate with each and every one of us. Yes. They they are capable of changing the the absolute fabric of our innate humanness. Mm -hmm. So if we can value that, if we can tap into our story and if we can share it with someone else that may be struggling then maybe just maybe we might be able to help them heal or at least spark the path of healing mm-hmm. and that's why i appreciate your story even though yeah. i haven't heard haven't heard all of it <laughs> so thank you it actually makes me think about um all the stories that i collected as a stripper mm. yeah that people just wanted someone to share a story with and not like, you know, having a beer at the pub kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. regrets from that period of time? Um, I wish I had to save more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there was that. Um, I had a lot, I actually had a lot of fun. Yeah, I was serious, I was focused. Um, Yeah, and I also had a lot of fun. I think one of, no, maybe it's not a regret. I wish I had stayed in touch with some of the magnificent women. Yeah. But this was before Facebook and social media and cell phones. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Is there a specific story during that period of your life that sort of challenged your understanding of the world around you? Yes, 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 yes. Hmm. I'm trying to sort through the various stories. Hmm. You know, I was at one particular club for seven years and so I had regulars who would come and see me every week and it was really easy at the, at the start to try and um, think of them as desperate or as lonely. Mm. 
But what I recognised was the need for human touch and for human connection. Yeah. And one of my regulars was a man named Kevin and the only person I stayed in touch with, right, because, you know, that period of my life where I'm doing the bipolar lifestyle and I'm going back and forth between Australia and Alaska and and in Australia I'm, I'm, I'm stripping and I'm stage managing and then I'm going to Alaska and, and so, you know, my regulars at the club knew that I'd only be there for certain periods of the year now. Mm. And so they were part of my life as well. I wasn't just part of their lives. And at the start, it was this thing of, oh, yeah, I'm just part of their life and, you know, you know, <laughs> right. But after a while, it was like they were part of my life. Mm. You know, they were like, hey, I'm saving up for a bobcat, right? I'm saving up for some, for some lumber. I'm saving up for my, for my trip back. Yeah, and... And Kevin was one of those folks that I actually stayed in touch with and we wrote letters back and forth. And he's the only person who sends me a birthday card each year and he's the only birthday card I send and we also send a Christmas card to each other. And once again, it's the only Christmas card I get. And um, and Kevin died um, in May. Yeah. And so when I um, found out the news because he actually talked with me to about me to his family. He was in his 80s when he died. His daughter found me on Facebook um, and connected with me and let me know about her, her dad's passing. And so I only found out uh, last week. And I then sat and thought about it and I realised I'd known Kevin for 20 years. Right? Through, yeah. And there's this thing that I believe is so instinctual in all humans and it's the desire to be known. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Def- yes. And what's this all about? Yeah. 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 And yeah. 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 Have you read Man's Search for Meaning? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. He says exactly. that. Man can live without sex, they can live without objects, but they can't live without meaning. Yeah. 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 And embedded within meaning is connection to something bigger than me. Yeah. Or something other than me. Mm. Yeah. And so for me, just the knowing of Kevin and the holding of his story has been so incredibly meaningful for me. And here I was going into an industry thinking, yeah, I'm just I'm going to make money and it's going to support me in my life endeavours and spiritual endeavours and other endeavours, yeah. Mm. But I think in a lot of, in so many ways, I got so much more out of it than the money that I made. Mm. I appreciate you, you sharing that story and I'm yeah. sorry that he he passed. I mean, that's hard, lost grief. Mm. especially when you've known someone for a long period of time then suddenly they're not there anymore. It's that in of itself is traumatic. It's like, Mm -hmm. how do we, how do we understand that? Yeah. How do we, how do we find meaning around it? You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. It's also that trauma survivor thing where I forget a lot of things, right? Because I am a little bit dissociative and I forget a lot of things. And he's someone who witnessed me during that period of my life. And so therefore what I went through was real. 
Mm. You know, it's been such a long time now since I danced that it feels like that was someone else and that was another life and another lifetime ago. And he was there for that period of my life, which then makes it real. And I forget, I forget. Yeah. Sort of reminding you of that period of your life. Oh, yeah. Where you did learn a lot. <laughs> and that's, yes. that's, that's like yeah example for me because I'm, I'm still 24 mm-hmm. and I feel like I've lived a number of lifetimes already mm-hmm. with the amount of things that I've had to experience. And I, I just say to people, you know, age is, is but a number. It's not, it's not everything. I mean, I think society has made it such an important thing. Like we celebrate every single year our birthday. Like mm-hmm. we've travelled around the sun one more time or something like that. It's like we place so much emphasis on the age point, but we don't place a lot of emphasis on the experience point of this person. Like mm. what, have, what have they got to share yeah. in their life? What's what's their story? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, I say, often oftentimes people have, have told me that my age goes against me and I was like, no, my mm-hmm. age goes for me because mm-hmm. I have been able to experience, uh, as I'm sure you have, Linda, a lot and now I'm able to hopefully share that with others like you're doing now, Linda, mm-hmm. so that they might be able to realise that they are worth something. Mm-hmm. that they have meaning and purpose already just by being here, by being yeah. alive. Yes, yes. And I often think about some of my regulars, mm. right, Who some of whom just didn't have many social skills and it would be easy to um, judge them. Mm. Yeah, as Scotty got no friends, the way we used to judge kids in primary school and, um you know, and because they were giving me money, I was like, okay, I'll be all right. Uh, but it was just such a joy over time because I saw, and I still think about these people. I mean, there was one man who made his money like putting bets on the greyhounds and on the horse race, horse races, right? And but he didn't have much of a life outside of that. And another another person made money um, playing black blackjack. And going to casinos around the world and doing blackjack tournaments. Wow. And, and so these, these people with neurotypical brains, sorry, neurodivergent brains, mm-hmm. you engage with the world differently. And so they don't have the same desire or aptitude or ability to grease the wheels of social interactions. Yeah. I, I, another regular I had was the guy who gets employed by a big law firm or company, a corporation, and he carries your documents in a briefcase and he's handcuffed to the briefcase and the briefcase has a lock on it. And he goes through the airport, like he travels to other parts of the world connected to this briefcase of documents. That's not just a movie thing. It's not just a movie thing. thing. And he'd he'd been doing it for like 30 years of his life. And because he's in such high demand and he travels so much, he doesn't have friends. Mm. Yeah. Or he can't find like a um a touchstone. You know, because our friends, our families or our jobs, they become touchstones. And when you don't have that, 
you know, I, yeah, you find them in other ways. It's not living. <laughs> it's not living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yet it's, yeah it's, yes, and it's a story worth telling. Yes, very true. Yeah. Yeah, and I would be sitting there and these people would be telling me the stories of their lives, which they were, like, bored with because they've been doing it for 20, 30 years, and I'd be like, you do what? <laughs> you, what you do what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So later on in your life, the <laughs> place you are at now, yes. did you ever think that you would be here? No. No, absolutely not, because I wasn't interested in helping other people. Mm. Yeah. I didn't even realise I had wounds inside of myself that needed to be healed. I was just living in my own cycle of trying to get more or less or better or worse of the same over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I figured if I had more money, then I could figure out the next piece whenever the next piece came. But let's just start with like having some money because here I was like, you know, the early 2000s, two parents, my mother had a ninth grade education. My dad had a sixth grade education. They both worked in factories, you know, working class background. They sent me to a private girls school, which just wasn't the right place for me. Um, and thinking that I needed to have a career to get ahead and a career just wasn't the thing for me. And yet I'm caught in the machinations of the, 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 the wheel of capitalism. And so I figured if I, if I just took care of myself first and made money, then I'd be able to figure out what happened next mm. with that money somehow. <laughs> and then I, and if you had said healing to me, I mean, it was funny when I left my corporate job, my boss at the time gave me this book by Louise Hayes and it's the, you know, it's the book you can heal yourself. And I remember looking at it going, why'd you give me this? I mean, she, I mean <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah. And I didn't get it. I didn't get why she gave me the book. I was like, huh? Is Yeah. And I look back at that moment now. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. So I was, I was, I was like double zen. I was ignorant of my ignorance. Mm. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah, I was totally unaware that I was in need of healing. And if anything, I was one of those anti-healing people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because I ex- I had experienced um that sense of shame around something being wrong with you. And so here I was going through the world all armored up and taking everyone down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same here. here. You walk around like you allow the ego to sort of creep. It doesn't really creep. Well, most of the time it creeps up inside you and you you hardly know that it's there. And then before it's too late, oftentimes it's done a lot of damage Mm -hmm. to your life and to the lives of other people. So you're basically passing your trauma onto someone else so they can experience their own form of trauma as well. And yeah, it's just, it's crazy. So I think being able to recognize that the ego is there, remove it, heal from it because the ego is going to come back eventually if we allow it to come back. So yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the questions that I did want to ask you that just sort of came to my mind right now is what do you love the most about yourself and your story? 
Mm. Yeah, you ask some pretty awesome questions. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think, what do I love about myself and my story? That I kept listening to my inner voice and inner guidance. Even when it led me into mishap after mishap, I, I looking back, I needed to experience the ways in which I was avoiding my own pain by inflicting it onto others. Yeah. 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 Um, and yet in that listening to that voice, I learned to, I also did things that a lot of other people don't do. You know, I think every, nearly every um, overseas trip I've done has been by myself. Yeah, I wasn't going to wait for anyone to give me permission. I was just going to go and do it. And I was done with waiting for other people to get ready or get themselves together to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. So I just went ahead and did them. And that has always held me in really good stead. Yeah. I think I need to, um, when COVID ends, <laughs> like that's that's the only thing that is stopping me right now because believe it or not, 2020 was the year that I, I wanted to travel. I wanted oh. to experience the world. I wanted to, because I'm a huge history nerd. So mm-hmm. I love I love the process of learning and, I, and just the sheer element of, learning the stories of our past ancestors that have came come before us and the, you know, learning about their traumas as well and how they either recognised that it was there or how they were able to heal from it too, like all that stuff. Yeah, but then COVID hit and believe it or not, I've never been on a plane. So I still need to experience a lot of things. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah. So Alaska. I, that <laughs> was my. Alaska. I want to. I want to go to a, like Alaska actually because you've 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 given me this great picture <laughs> of of Alaska. Is it is it really cold there? It can be. It can be. Good to know. I love the cold though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we um we see where I live in Alaska. We see forty below a lot of winters, and we have no wind chill, which is really fortunate. Mm-hmm. And the wind, the air is super dry. And so it's so dry that you get spontaneous blood noses because, the, you know, because we nose breathe. <laughs> <laughs> no, because if you nose breathe, the cold air takes longer to get to your lungs, whereas if you mouth breathe, it, it, yeah, yeah, you can frostbite your lungs. And so you know you learn to noise breathe and you learn to noise breathe really slowly when it's really cold. And there's there's and yet it can dry out the skin here. And so you get these spontaneous nose bleeds and it's okay. Mm. <laughs> it's the blood fun. freezes, it freezes pretty quickly. <laughs> Your blood freezing. Oh, that'd be a sight. Yeah. <laughs> On the outside of you. Hey, it's like Bob's got a blood nose. Oh, that's normal here. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't stress. It's all good. It'll heal. <laughs> no, but the, the thing I love about the cold here is it forces you to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Like I grew up in Melbourne and like you could ignore the weather every day of the year, but here you actually have to pay attention mm. and it forces you to slow down and it's fantastic. 
to slow down. Mm. I need yeah. I need that actually. <laughs> I have a habit of going a million miles an hour. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a great habit, I mm-hmm. I will admit, but that has contributed to some of my health issues in the past. Mm-hmm. And I've had to work on that. And because mm-hmm. I'm one of those, you know, high achievers, want basically for myself, not for others. Like I want to do a lot of things and I feel like I don't have enough time. <laughs> so I get a little bit of impatient there and end up causing myself a lot of pain and hurt and grief. And that also passes down to my family too. So it's, yeah, lots to work on, <laughs> which is managing, <laughs> managing stuff. So anyway, um, I, I know I'll, I'll get there and I appreciate you sharing your story today, Linda. My, my mm-hmm. final question for you, mm-hmm. this is my all-time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end of all my conversations. Mm-hmm. A hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your Ooh. friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, I know. But they've been able to get it all and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Hmm. She didn't die with potential. Yeah, I didn't take my potential with me to the grave. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like I lived my life in Technicolor. And I got to experience the fullness and the depth of the human spiritual condition within myself and with and through other people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And that I also, I lived as a part of the earth. Yeah, because the thing that gets lost, I find, because my life is on podcasts and interviews and Zoom classes and you see this much of me, is that people don't actually get to see, you know, the log cabin in the woods and the hunting and the fishing and the growing food and the, yeah, the composting toilet or the outhouse, (laughs) the pee rag that I've got on the the line outside that I've been using for well over 10 years, well before COVID. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that I lived as part of the earth rather than living on the earth. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Perfect send-off message. Where can people find you, Linda, connect with you, learn more about you, listen to some of your other interviews as well? Sure. It's uh, com. L-I-N-D-A-T-H-A-I.com. Yeah. No social media at all? Uh, I am on Facebook and I have a business page and a, pro- and a personal page. You can friend me on either. Uh, I don't do Twitter. It confuses me. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> TikTok confuses me. Uh, yeah, a lot of things confuse me. 
I love it. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for your time today. Your stories, everything that we have spoken about has been a help to me and I have no doubt it will be a help to countless others. So thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast. Thank you, Jay. It's been an absolute pleasure. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 